Welcome back to the fundmonitors.com Meet the Manager series. Today I'm joined by Chris Weldon from Magellan Asset Management. Chris co-manages the Magellan High Conviction Fund along with firm CIO Hamish Douglas. The Magellan High Conviction Fund follows an unconstrained, very highly concentrated long-only strategy that invests in global large-cap stocks. The fund investing in just 8 to 12 of Magellan's best ideas. The fund also has the ability to take a cash exposure of up to 50%. The fund was started in July 2013 and since inception has returned 14.1% for investors. Chris, thanks for joining me today. Very welcome, Damon. Thank you for having me. Chris, the last three months has been one of the most extraordinary quarters in history. Uh, we've seen several coronavirus vaccines clear trials. The US election was run and won, and that was followed by an assault on the US Capitol. Uh, I'm interested, did any of these incidents change Magellan's focus through that period? Well, it, uh, it didn't change our focus. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, question. Uh, the focus has always been and will always be on uh, attractive risk-adjusted compounding of the client's capital over the long term. Um, but did that change our portfolio construction? Uh, it did, yeah, for, for across our portfolios um, through the final months of, uh, 2020 and into 2021, it'd be fair to say that our risk appetite has increased somewhat. And that is on the back of lower economic risk today, given the outcome of the US election. Um, it's also on the back of lower scientific risk today because of that very positive vaccine news that you discussed. Um, so both of those events, you know, the reduced scientific risk, the reduced economic and political risk have resulted in an increased risk appetite for us at the margin. Uh, and we've been deploying some of the cash across our portfolios, but we are not fully invested today. And the primary reason for that is we're still mindful around some of the mutation risk that still exists with respect to COVID. You know, we're seeing mutations in nature. Uh, we're seeing other mutations in various lab settings around the world. Some of those are quite concerning. And just with uh, prevailing asset prices and prevailing equity prices, the risk of a serious mutation that would render the current vaccines and current treatment protocols inadequate and would sort of require reprogramming of the current vaccines or uh, the launch of new vaccine programs, that risk doesn't seem to be reflected in market prices. It's very hard to handicap the likelihood of that mutation um, but we are seeing those mutations happen, as I mentioned, in nature and in, and in lab settings as well. So you can't say it's a zero risk, a zero risk um, but there is some risk associated with further mutations of, of the virus and all the shutdowns and restrictions that could potentially mean um, if we saw those. So we are not fully risk on, we're not fully cash deployed. We uh, are mindful of some of the risks. We're also mindful of sort of prevailing equity prices at the moment. It's not a market that's, that's pricing in a lot of uh, fear and concern uh, and some of these risks that we're, that we're mindful of. So we're not yet fully deployed, but yes, our portfolio has changed uh, since let's call it the month of November when we've had the vaccine results and the US election outcome. And Chris, what are some of the key themes that that you're looking towards in 2021? Are you looking at opportunities related to a world potentially coming out of this pandemic? It's both, Damon. It's, it's a good question. We're looking at uh, a sort of continuation of some of the structural 
thematics that we have been invested in for many years, but that we saw accelerate through the COVID environment. That would be things like the continuation of shift towards e-commerce, uh, the sustained growth in cloud computing, um, the acceleration in digital payments. All of those things were already represented in our portfolio through investments in businesses like Microsoft and Alphabet and Visa and Tencent and so on down the list. So we are still invested in those businesses. We're highly attracted to those businesses. And there was a lot of strong evidence that came through the COVID environment that that is obviously the, the, the way the future is going. There was an acceleration in adoption and engagement with a lot of those businesses and their services through COVID. Um, and we continue to surf those waves, you know, of e-commerce and cloud computing, digital payments, online gaming, streaming, and so on within our portfolios. It would also be fair to say, Damon, that we're looking at potentially cyclical opportunities, um, businesses that would provide uh, a bit more exposure to broader economic reopenings around the world and the lifting in travel restrictions, uh, businesses that would perform well should should those events occur should we have sustained strong economic growth and uh, people able to travel uh, more broadly with fewer restrictions in the quarters uh, and years ahead um, so we're looking at that space quite closely whether or not we'll deploy capital uh, still not sure yet again we're trying to handicap these mutation risks we're also trying to think through uh, what's in the share price for those let's call it travel sensitive businesses they've obviously performed very well since the vaccine news uh, in November. So more of that upside is reflected in the price of those businesses today. But we're looking very closely at some of those cyclical opportunities, but very comfortable in the longer term structural tailwinds that are represented in the portfolio through a lot of our large shareholdings. Chris, the geographical exposure um, by revenue of your high conviction fund includes a 35 exposure to the US and a 21% exposure to China uh, and two of the largest exposures in there. What's your view on the future of that US-China cooperation in the wake of um, the Biden presidency or the start of the Biden presidency? It's a very important question, Damon. And I think the, the sort of simple answer is we think that relationship will remain challenged. Um, you know, there is a sort of a, a longer arc here and a, a decoupling between the US and China, whether it be economically, um, politically, of course. Um, I, we're not sort of suggesting this will end in some sort of uh, hot war or, or sort of conflict, but there is increasing scope of competition between uh, these two large economies, the two largest economies on the planet. And China, with its rise, is naturally... Uh, expanding its sphere of influence. And as it does that, it's bumping up against the incumbent uh, and the allies of that incumbent being the United States. So I think the Biden presidency, uh, I think we can tell so far, it's still early days, but it seems that Biden will look to lower the temperature somewhat. Uh, and the rhetoric and the tweeting probably isn't there in the Biden administration like it was under the Trump administration. Um, but it's also fair to say that Trump raised some, you know, some pretty important issues and there's now a dialogue around those issues. Uh, and I think Biden may continue that sort of dialogue and there's some bipartisan support in the United States to take a tougher stance against China going forward. 
as it relates to the portfolio, you're absolutely right. We do have um, a large and increasing exposure to Chinese businesses. Uh, we've been very mindful, though, around the flavour of that China exposure because of this US, US China risk. The China revenues that you referenced are coming from domestic businesses operating in China with very little um, export exposure or foreign exposure. These are the Chinese tech platforms, for example, like Alibaba and Tencent, which are primarily reliant on uh, domestic economic conditions and business conditions. They're not too reliant on uh, any US-China relations. It's also true that we have businesses like Starbucks in the portfolio and an important uh, and increasingly important part of the Starbucks investment case over the coming decades will be their growth in China. They already have 5,000 cafes in there. They're opening another 50 cafes there every month. They've already been there for two decades. So it's an important part of the business and will continue to become an increasingly important part over time. And so we do have to be mindful, and we are, around the risks of a Western or US brand uh, like Starbucks operating in China. Now, we're more comfortable with a business like Starbucks uh, because we don't regard you know, selling coffee uh, as particularly strategic to the Chinese government, unlike 5G telecommunications, unlike military industries uh, and things like that, selling coffee seems to be fairly benign in terms of how strategic the, the, the Communist Party would, would regard that. Um, be a very different case if we were thinking about a, a, a US communications business or, or chip manufacturer or something like that in a more strategic industry. So we're mindful of it. We continue to pay a lot of attention to that. We recognise that is one of the, the risks associated with an investment in Starbucks. We don't want to uh, suggest it is the, the, you know, the number one risk for our investment in Starbucks. It's, it's in the mix, but it's not the primary risk. Uh, some great points, Chris. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are really interested in how the, the whole US-China thing plays out. And uh, your comments regarding a lack of tweets, uh, I think a lot of people understand that that's... Uh, probably are quite a good thing. Um, thank you for your time today. Um, much appreciated. Uh, good luck uh, in 2021 with the fund and uh, thank you for joining us. Pleasure, Damon. Thanks for having us again.